0: my friendiei. Welcome back to another episode of Hometown Homicide. I'm your host, Jolene. And I do actually have a review to read out this week, so I will get straight to that and then we'll get straight on to the episode. So this week we have a review from Ian from Frost, who said, Fantastic true crime podcast, the best and number one podcast from Wales and truly worth listening to. Good info on cases I had never heard before. So thanks, Ian. (laughs) I appreciate it. And if you guys want to leave a review and get a shout-out in an episode, I hope that's an incentive for you to do so. Now, on to some darker topics now. This episode definitely comes with a listener discretion advice. It is very heavy. There is mutilation involved that I will be discussing only briefly and then I won't really go back to it again. But if that is something that you feel you can't listen to, either you can skip over it when I give you the warning that it's coming or you can just skip this episode altogether. Do what's best for you. Make sure that you're safe. Make sure you're not triggered. Make sure everything is okay for you. And with that being said, let's get into the case of the vampire killing. Late on the evening of the 24th of November 2001, 90-year-old widow Mabel Leishon was sat in her favourite armchair watching television in her home in Puss, Anglesey. She was totally unsuspecting when she was suddenly stabbed through the shoulder blade from behind. Her assailant proceeded to stab Mabel a further 22 times, and as if this wasn't brutal enough, I'm going to give a trigger warning here, this is about to get a little bit intense. The attacker moved Mabel to a different chair slashed her leg three times in an attempt to drain blood out of her into a saucepan. When this failed, because she was now dead and no longer had any blood pumping inside of her, the assailant cut open her chest extremely roughly and removed Mabel's heart. Allegedly, they drained the blood from the heart by cutting it open at the top and squeezing it out into the saucepan. Lip marks were later found on the rim of the saucepan, and residue from the blood left behind indicated that the killer had drank the blood from inside the saucepan. They then wrapped the heart in newspaper, placed it in the saucepan, and then put it onto a silver platter. They also laid out two candlesticks either side of Mabel's body, and lay out two fire pokers in the shape of a cross. This was later referred to in the trial as a black mass. The following day, on the 25th of November 2001, a Meals on Wheels delivery woman arrived at the home to deliver Mabel's lunch. She went around the back of the property after getting no answer from the front door, and knowing that Mabel was quite hard of hearing, she went around the back to see if she could get her attention. She found broken glass at the rear door, so she entered the home and found Mabel covered with a blanket. She immediately noticed the obvious wounds to Mabel's head and alerted the police immediately. Up until this point, the town of Sanfire had very little violent crimes. The police were extremely taken aback by the crime scene. They had never dealt with anything of this magnitude before. And they decided to protect the public from the true horror that had taken place because they didn't want to alarm them. They didn't want to create like mass hysteria within the town because it was such a quiet, small little residential town. Slanfriopus is the first town as you cross the bridge over from mainland Wales to the island of Anglesey. It's mostly made up of elderly residents, a point which we'll come back to later. It's known worldwide for the longest name, which is Slanfriopus Gwyngith Gogerith Gwyndrobus Santasilio Gogogog. It's taken me like two days, Lino, to say that, so I hope you appreciate it. The majority of the town is Welsh-speaking, and they are world-famous for their mussels and their water sports. Mussels being the food, not, like, (laughs) mussels. Mabel Layshawn had lived in her home for over 50 years with her husband, who was a vet. He had sadly passed away, and the couple had no children together. So at this point in her life, Mabel really left the house, and she was becoming very hard of hearing, and she had started to lose her eyesight too. It was theorised that the reason that the killer was able to get inside unnoticed was because Mabel would have had her telly playing so loud due to her oncoming deafness. The glass that was found on the floor at the point of entry had shoe impressions on it, so they were able to pull the shoe impressions from that, and that was their first piece of evidence. They also found denim fibres on the broken pieces of glass, and there was blood found in the home, which was a mixture of both victim and perpetrator, and they later determined that the perpetrator was male. The town was completely shaken by the murder. They didn't even know the full details, and a murder alone was scary enough. The North Wales police usually dealt with, like, drunkenness and, like, petty theft and things up in this area. They didn't deal with horrific mutilating murders. People were just... Scared. They were so fearful that a killer was on the loose. The problem with Anglesey is that they have workers who come to work in the factories, like migrant ones, who just come over to work in the factories and then go back home, which could be anywhere in the world. And also, I'm pretty sure there's only one exit and entrance, which is that like bridge. So there's just a quick way on, a quick way off, and that's it. You can be back in mainland Wales, and within a few hours you could be in England, and God knows where else you could go. So it was a real worry that this person was not a local, but also it would have been worse if it was a local because it was one of their own. So it would have been harder to find a suspect who was outside of their local range, but also if they found them within their local range, it would have just devastated the community. The residents went as far to just completely stop going out at night. They went home, they locked their doors, they stayed inside, and they just didn't they just didn't go out because it was terrifying for them. They were just so scared that they would be the next victim. The investigation took DNA from 7,000 male residents between the ages of 18 to 60, including police staff. This only served to rule out all of those people. They hadn't yet found any matches in the DNA. One week later, a lead came. A local 37-year-old man had doused himself in petrol, lit himself on fire, and had taken his own life by jumping off Britannia Bridge. The media picked this up straight away and they began to suggest that this was the murderer with a guilty conscience and the town went along with this theory because they just wanted the nightmare to be over. They wanted this to be the killer so that he was gone and they didn't need to think about it anymore. Although the man's suicide notes did contain quotes from the Bible that were like pertaining to the heart and talking about the heart, his shoe prints did not match and there was no link ever found so I can only assume that they did his DNA and that came back negative as well. After this, the investigation moved on to focus on migrant workers in the meat and fish factories on the island. They even went as far as to send officers from North Wales Police abroad to interview potential suspects, but this was just another dead end again. Whilst this was going on, the shoe print evidence was being worked on. The police were trying to find the quote unquote upper, which is the top part of the shoe, so the bit with the fabric on the bit that has like the logos on and things like that. They were looking for that so they could identify even though they had the sole print, they just wanted to look so they had this shoe, so they could say, This is the shoe, do you own these? Do you wear these? As people has anyone seen you wearing them? And although many shoes have the same sole, just with a different upper, the police managed to narrow it down to a Levi's trainer, which was a model that hadn't actually sold well at all and was only stocked in one shop locally in Anglesey. 48 purchases of the shoe were made by card and five in cash. And even though the police said the cash ones would be hard to narrow down and find, this was a really, really big lead because they could now look at these 48 card purchases and these five cash purchases and say whether or not this person could be connected, this person, it was a really, really big moment. And even though the case is quoted as being a long, slow, methodical investigation, unquote, it was definitely a diligent and thoroughly, thoroughly done investigation. On the 20th of December 2001, the British TV show Crime Watch launched an appeal into Mabel's death and they actually received over 200 calls pertaining to Mabel's murder and one call named a local boy, 17-year-old Matthew Hardman. This call came from a German exchange student who, six weeks before Mabel's murder, had been at a party that Matthew had also been attending. He had asked her to bite him at the party, like, on his neck because he believed that she was a vampire, and if she bit him, it would turn him. And when the police came to the party, at the request of this probably freaked out German exchange student, Hardman was asking the arresting officers if they would instead bite him, because she hadn't. And no charges were brought over this, and I don't really know why no one worried about it either. Nobody seemed bothered, like nothing happened afterwards, they just kind of left it. But it is strange. It's strange behaviour. You don't go to a party and go, hmm, can you bite my neck? Like, ugh, it's so weird. Police visited Hardman at his home, which was only about 200 metres from Mabel Leishon's home, on the 5th of January 2002. Originally, he claimed to not even know Mabel or have ever been to her house. However, his mother, whose name is said to either be Julie or Julia, depending on what source you read, she said that he had done a paper round that included Mabel's house since 1996, and Mabel would often ask Hardman to close the gate as he left her house. So he definitely had some sort of relationship with her, he definitely knew who she was at least, he definitely knew that she lived alone, and he definitely knew she was too old possibly to defend herself. The last paper that he had delivered to her would have been within a month of the murder, even though previously Hardman denied this and said that he hadn't been there in years. His mother kind of just dobbed him in, essentially. By chance, the same officers investigating the shoe print were also the interviewing officers at Hardman's house, and they asked to see his collection of shoes. They noticed that the Levi's shoes matching the prints left behind at the, the crime scene were among the collection of Hardman's shoes, So he willingly gave a DNA sample, and he also gave the police all of his shoe collection. They basically did it under the pretense they wanted to test all of them, so that they wouldn't kind of arouse suspicion from him that they knew that this pair was being used. Two days later, it came back that the Levi's shoes that were found in Matthew Hardman's collection matched that of the shoes that had left a print behind at the murder of Mabel Leishon. In the early hours of Tuesday, the 8th of January, 2002, Matthew Hardman was arrested, Upon a search of his room, they found a black jacket that contained a bladed weapon matching that of the findings of the autopsy, which had said that it had been a six-inch bladed weapon, and this is what they found. They also found a pair of blue denim jeans and a meat cleaver hidden in Matthew's room. Matthew Hardman was interviewed over the course of two days, and he was described by the police as being completely, quote, emotionless, unquote, as he denied all allegations. The DNA results came back as a match of 1 in 1,000 to Matthew Hardman and this on the documentary was said to have been just within the nick of time because he was set to be released because they can only hold you for a certain amount of time. He was set to be released at 8pm and the results came back at 6pm the same day so they just got him and God knows what would have happened if he had been set free. This DNA evidence along with the shoe print was enough to charge Matthew Hardman. Matthew Hardman had moved to the town when he was 13 years old. His father, who was a firefighter, had died of an asthma attack a year later. Despite this being kind of pinpointed as the point that he turned as a person and changed, he's actually described as a, quote, diligent, well-behaved school pupil, unquote. He's kind of just unremarkable in all senses. He left school at 16 to study art at college. He did suffer from dyslexia, but one teacher was said in one article, it'll be in the description below, One teacher was said to have helped him work through that and he overcame that and he was just your average kid. And there was nothing, there was no warning signs, there was nothing to suggest he would do this awful, brutal murder. Matthew Hardman stood trial in July 2002 at Mould Crown Court. Originally his name was uh, suppressed and they weren't allowed to name him in the media because of his age and he used to come to court with a blanket over his head. Obviously the local people probably knew that it was him but he wasn't allowed to be named in the media because he was so young, but he was allowed to be named after the trial. The prosecution alleged that Hardman had an unhealthy obsession with vampirism. This was in the early 2000s, so there were shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the Blade movies were out, but it wasn't until the release of Twilight in 2008 that vampires became mainstream, so being really, really interested in them did seem a bit odd at the time. In a 2002 Guardian article, Matthew Hardman was said to have visited websites such as the Vampire Rights Movement and the Vampire Slash Donor. And he also had, quote, a magazine telling how to conduct a black mass and how to cook human flesh. He had a copy of Bram Stoker's Dracula and a library book titled The Devil, an autobiography, unquote. The presiding judge, Mr. Justice Richards, did point out that teenagers do often have interests such as this and he kind of told the jury to go into this with an open mind and not to just be like, he's obsessed with vampires, he definitely did this. He told them to kind of be unbiased about this. And I can understand why because I myself was completely obsessed with Twilight when it came out. I didn't have an unhealthy obsession, I didn't go on to become a murderer but I at the time I was obsessed with it, you would call me obsessed. So I also don't know him having a copy of Dracula really plays into anything i think that's just a little bit of sensationalism like oh he reads dracula all the time like so does a lot of other people i have a copy of dracula you know what i mean it's, it's a classic book but i do think a lot of the other things such as the vampire donor website that kind of stuff is getting a little bit more into like the darker side of a interest in vampires and also an autobiography of the devil So, even though it is circumstantial evidence, I do think there are pros and cons to bringing this evidence forward. Obviously, the pros are that it does show him having this kind of, if you will, bloodlust. But also, the con is that he's a teenager and they they have weird obsessions sometimes. The same 2002 Guardian article did say that Hardman had told the German exchange student that he had asked to bite him, that Llanfirepuss had a good hunting ground because no one would think twice about a pensioner dying. And I think that is quite telling, even though, again, circumstantial evidence, it is quite telling. You don't think that, like, when you're interested in vampires, you don't think where I live is a great hunting ground. Like, that's starting to border on creepy obsessive and scary obsessive. The defence argued that it was a normal interest to have in vampires and it was like a subtle interest, it wasn't anything obsessive. And they also said that the blood evidence could have come from him doing his paper round. I don't really see how that could work. I don't care why you would be bleeding on, I believe it was the inside windowsill that they found the mixture of blood. I don't see why you'd be ble- you would be bleeding on the inside windowsill of your neighbour who you do a paper round for but it didn't matter anyway because the DNA at this point had been enhanced and it was no longer a 1 in 1,000 match, it was now a 1 in 73 million match. The defence then went on to argue that the knife that was found in the jacket in Matthew Hardman's bedroom was for self-defence because there was a murder on the loose and he wanted to defend himself, but other people had come forward to testify that Matthew Hardman was one of the only people that freely walked the streets after this murder had happened, as if... He almost knew that there wasn't going to be anyone there to harm him. Even though the knife had been cleaned, there was a split on the handle that contained traces of DNA, and these were proven to have matches to both Hardman and Mabel Leishon. The defence then argued that these items were cross-contaminated, and this is why there was so much DNA everywhere. But this argument was quashed because there was proof that the evidence was transported separately. I believe in the documentary they say that the evidence was transported in separate vans and it arrived at the same time, which is why on the paperwork it's like all written in at the same time, but it is different transportation that took them there. Don't quote me on that. Check out the documentary below. There's a lot of interesting information about the investigation in there. On the 2nd of August 2002, following four hours of deliberation, a jury found Matthew Hardman guilty of the murder of Mabel Leishon. Although he was given a life sentence, due to his age, his minimum sentence was to serve 12 years in prison, and he would not be eligible for parole without a confession. And even though there were reports that he was weeping at the trial, a Wales Online article from 2017 said that a psychiatric nurse had told them that Hardman had come into the prison following his sentencing with a, quote, huge grin on his face, unquote. And I don't really know what kind of emotions he would have been feeling because he was supposed to be like emotionless during the interview and then he would have been weeping in the trial. I don't know if he was weeping for himself or for what he had done, but he does still to this day deny having any involvement. But then I don't know why he would walk into the prison with a massive grin on his face because he's just gone to prison. Even if he was proud of what he did, he didn't admit it. So why would he? I don't know. He's a very, very complicated character. In early 2003, Matthew Hardman appealed his sentence, but it was rejected in a single judge trial. And later that year, Hardman appealed again on the grounds that the vampire evidence presented, including the testimony of the German exchange student, should not have been allowed into the trial. The three judges who were overseeing this appeal did deny it and according to a Wales Online article from 2003, one of the presiding judges, Lord Justice Mantle, said, quote, we are perfectly satisfied that the judge was not only entitled but right to admit the evidence, unquote. As of June 2020 when I'm recording this, Matthew Hardman is still in prison to this day and he has no appeals coming up, there's nothing that I could find that says that he's trying to get out again. The only article I could find did say that he's probably going to spend life in prison now and you can see that below as well. I'll link that. But as far as I can see, he is going to serve a lot more than 12 years. He already has. And rightfully so, I believe. Even though he's never admitted to the crime, there's so much evidence against him that it is hard to deny that he didn't do it. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Hometown Homicide. I know it was quite a rough episode to get through i know i say that with a lot of them but this one in particular this really hit me hard i don't really tend to get shaken much by cases i don't know if that makes me a psychopath a lot but i mean i watch so much true crime and i like literally live and breathe true crime that at this point it takes a lot to kind of shake me and this case really really scared me like i was up all night thinking about it it was on my brain all the time it was just intense it was really really intense to to Research, and I'm just so glad that I could bring this story to you guys because. I find it so shocking that this happened in Wales. I have never heard of this. And even though I would have only been like four when this crime was committed, still, I thought that people would be like, did you know there was a vampire killer in Wales? And that's kind of the point of this podcast, is to bring you guys these kinds of stories that people don't talk about anymore. And like, if this had happened in England or America, I'm pretty sure everybody would know about it. I don't know if it's just because Wales has this kind of image of not having that much crime, as far as I know. Like, people don't immediately think of Wales for having extremely brutal murders or even serial killers which we do have and i have a few episodes coming up on that i am starting to move forward with getting a patreon ready for you guys so if you would like to see that then by all means let me know on twitter or instagram or by email if you have any suggestions for that if you want to follow me on instagram that handle is at hometown pod if you want to follow me on twitter that's kind of where i'm most active and i can like interact the most that is at h underscore h podcast and if you want to email me any case suggestions any sort of feedback or anything anything at all <laughs> you can do that at hometownhomicidepod at gmail.com and for all of these sources now I've changed all the descriptions they are now linked only on my website just to keep the show notes looking a bit tidy. So the website is hometownhomicidepod dot wordpress dot com. Thank you guys so much. I will see you guys next week. I will speak to you guys next week. And until then, stay safe out there.